You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You know, we are taught to apologize in our culture for things that are wrong or mean or embarrassing or disrespectful. And I don't believe that tears are any of that. I think tears are a God-given gift that shows other people our grief. You know, and it is it is a manifestation where words cannot go. It's like a bookmark. It's like this pain is so great right now that I'm just going to show you rather than tell you. Time keeps moving away from you, away from me. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and we are in 2020. So welcome to the first podcast of the new year. Uh, Before we get into this week's guest, though, a couple things I want to note. I'm sure some of you are wondering, what happened to Adam? Um, Well, Adam has taken a new job. It's been a really great career decision for him. But along with it uh, has come a lot of travel. And so um, Adam's doing the right thing and spending what time he has at home with his family and going to t-ball games and uh, ballet recitals and all the things a good dad should do. And so as such, Adam will be away for the foreseeable future. But of course, uh, the door is always open for a triumphant return. In the meanwhile, I have a life-size cutout of Adam uh, in the chair next to me and a glass of bourbon so I can feel like he's still here with me. Um, having said that, um, I've always said that as long as this adventure, that is this podcast, remains fun and people still find value in it, um, that we'll, we'll keep it going um, and continue to feed it and see where it goes. So, um, so together, we'll see what 2020 has in store. Uh, what to look forward to in this new year is we'll have some returning guests as always, but plenty of new voices uh, that we've never had on before uh, with plenty of fun and interesting topics that we'll address uh, this year. We're uh, super excited about it. Uh, we'll be updating our web store uh, hopefully soon. Um, it's pretty sad. And uh, so we've got some uh, new pictures coming there. Um, and as always, you can access our web store through www.thedeconstructionist.com. Uh, we have tons of cool t-shirts on there, coffee mugs, pint glasses for sale. Um, as always, you can find us on social media through there. So there's social media links. Uh, you can read our blogs that we post there, uh, stream all the uh, current and past episodes, and of course, join our Patreon family if you wish to support us in that way. Uh, we got some cool packages there. Um, we're going to look to updating the packages that are offered uh, this year as well. Uh, of course, we'll keep the ever popular book club one going where we send you a, uh, a book every month. 
Um, sometimes they are books from the guests that we've had on. Sometimes not. Sometimes it's just uh, things that we're reading that we think are, are really interesting. So, uh, so you can find that on the website as well. So, uh, also, what else? Oh, we have a huge landmark episode coming. So uh, we left off at number 95. This should be episode 96, I believe. And uh, so our 100th episode is coming very, very soon. Uh, And we have a really special, really cool guest. Uh, I'm not going to ruin the surprise, though. Uh, But uh, I think you guys will will enjoy it. but as always, uh, we'll, we'll continue to share uh, really amazing bands and musicians on the podcast, and we'll continue to update our Spotify playlist with songs from every musical act that we feature on the show. So if you're not already uh, following us there and you're a Spotify subscriber, um, you can follow our playlist on there. I update it um, based on the band that we use on the episode. We, we throw a song from that band or that artist uh, on that playlist, so you can, you can follow all the way back to when we first started using music. Uh, with all of that out of the way, we welcome the return of Jacqueline Bussey, Dr. Jacqueline Bussey, to the podcast. Uh, we had her on during Christmas of 2018. Um, a massive fan of her work. Um, I, in fact, I went back and read her prior book, uh, which is called Outlaw Christian, and, and we talk and mainly focus in this episode on that book. Um, and uh, it, it's just a book that really nails down what we've been about since the very beginning. Uh, the last time we had her on, we talked about her more recent book, Love Without Limits. Uh, so we're sort of doing this backwards, but I really felt like Outlaw Christian hit on so many of the themes that we've discussed in the show uh, that we just had to have her back. So, um, And I was lucky enough to see her this past summer, um, and she does this really cool talk on on both books, actually. And uh, they're, they're really terrific um, companion pieces. So if you've only read the one, um, highly recommend the other. Uh, the two just flow together very, very nicely. But Outlaw Christian is, I think, what a lot of uh, you guys out there um, have really probably felt uh, and, and probably what led you to a podcast like this one. So I uh, really think this one's going to hit home. Um, as usual, uh, she's got a lot of content poured into um, a really a relatively digestible sized book. And so she's got a lot of heavy theological topics in there that she covers. Um, she's just a great writer, just a great writer. And we've said this before that, you know, we've had academics on, uh, before, uh, who are brilliant and, uh, amazing to listen to, but not necessarily, uh, translating into the, the most digestible writing. (laughs) So, um, this is definitely one of those, uh, academics who, uh, she just got it. She just has a gift for writing. Uh, she writes very poetically, very accessible, um, and, and easy to uh, to understand, um, even when she's diving into the heaviest of theological concepts. So, uh, if you liked uh, her the first time around, you're going to love this one. Uh, she's such a joy to have on. So, go out and check out her her two or her both of her books, really, Outlaw Christian and uh, Love Without Limits, if you haven't already. Uh, and this week's band uh, is Family and Friends. So, if you like the music on here. Again, check out our, our Spotify playlist. But as always, please go out, support uh, the bands, You know, purchase their music, uh, follow them on social media, tell them we said hey. Um, we always appreciate the bands who um, allow us to use their, their music. So you can find all that in the show notes. And uh, with that, and without further ado, we give you Jacqueline freaking Bussy. My heart 
the sea. Well, Jacqueline Bussey, Dr. Jacqueline Bussey, so excited to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your evening to, uh, to talk about this book. Yeah, thank you, John. It's my pleasure. It's so great to be back. Absolutely. And, and this is a weird one because we're kind of going backwards. We, we did your, your new book. Uh, for people who have been listening for a while, we talked to you last, the end of last year. I think it was right around Christmas. And we talked about um, Love uh, Without Limits. And now we're going to go back to the book you wrote before that, uh, Outlaw Christian, because uh, I actually discovered them backwards. Uh, but Outlaw Christian could not be more uh, just perfect for the moment right now, uh, I, I think. And, and especially for those who listened to the end of this, this past year, uh, we talked about lament. And there's some other topics that uh, come up in this book uh, that hopefully we'll get into today. Um, so, um, yeah. So thank you for coming on to, and agreeing to talk about this book. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's getting to be a habit that we start talking every year in December, right? <laughs> I know. I know. Well, uh, you know, like I said, I, I, I probably have given out your book more uh, than, than pretty much any other, every other. So I actually just recently gave away my copy. And so I'm staring at my dad's copy with his underlines all throughout it. So <laughs> he lent it to me because oh, I'm like, so you know, <laughs> yeah, I was like, you know, I gave away the last couple copies I had about Law Christian. So anyway, <laughs> but <laughs> so, so Outlaw Christian, I love it. Um, I, I think it's, it's going to resonate um, very, very well with our listeners. Um, and, and we were just talking before we started recording at the very beginning of the book, uh, you make this comment where you say uh, that you're a Christian, but a strange one. And you kind of talk a little bit about how uh, you feel a, like a little bit different of a Christian than maybe the standard definition uh, would allow. So what, what did you mean by that? And then, and then really, let's get into what, what does it mean to be an outlaw Christian? Yeah, okay. Well, thank you. Yeah, well, at the very beginning of the book, I define an outlaw Christian as a person who is no longer willing to hide her grief, doubt, scars, anger, or questions from herself, from God, or from one another. And that's really, I think, something that I realized about myself in the course of writing that book was, you know, I have some really sort of rebellious strains within myself. I really have a lot of grief. I have a lot of doubt. I have a lot of questions. And sometimes I'm just really upset with God. And not everyone is like that. And I remember just thinking, okay, I need to come up with a term for what I am. Because sometimes when I would share some of my views, people would be like, that doesn't sound really Christian. You know, they'd be a little critical sometimes. And I remember thinking, yeah, I'm okay actually with being an outlaw. I'm an outlaw Christian. So I actually came up with that title a lot of books. I think my publisher said something like 80% of books, is the, the author does not come up with the title. But my publisher really loved that title. They were like, we're sticking with it, nice. outlaw Christian. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, so you have this, um, you have this, this beautiful creed uh, at the very beginning of the book as well. <clears throat> and there's some interesting themes uh, that I noticed throughout this creed that you, that you had written. And, um, and, and really, they're themes that I think a lot of folks, especially our listeners, uh, will identify with. Uh, that the, the idea that God is, is this mystery and the power of listening to other people's pain, suffering, and grief and then uh, also a big one is, is the role of doubt in a healthy life of faith. And, and so I thought that was very, very interesting. Um, so so um, how did you come up with this creed? And, and, uh, and yeah, how did you cover all, all of that, I guess, in the, in the creed? Because obviously you were kind of 
thinking about these things, these topics as well. Yeah, yeah, John. Well, you know, I have been a teacher, a teacher of college students for the last 16 years. And I remember while I was writing that, I started thinking about what are some of the things that I see, you know, within my students and what are some of the things that within me that resonate with my students or when I'm teaching them, my students just light up and they really want to talk about that. And it was a lot of those things. It was doubt. It was lament. It was really listening to these young people for all those years. You know, I teach theology. I get to hear what are the biggest questions on young people's hearts. And I feel like that's a privilege. You know, that's a gift to be able to hear that. And there were so many times that students would say to me something like, oh, you know, I just feel like I'm not a really good Christian anymore because of X. And so many times what they would say is, because I'm really pissed at God about this certain thing or, you know, this horrible thing that happened to someone or because I have all these doubts and I don't really know if the Bible is true or I just don't really know if there's a place for me within the church. And they would always say those sorts of things. And I would think secretly in my mind, I'm like, me too. You know, like I often thought that same thing. So I started realizing that there was a real strand of us out there who are Christians. We want to identify as Christians. And yet some of the ways that we're pushing against our tradition are a bit unorthodox. But then when I started looking at the Bible, John, what I realized was these are things that are actually biblical. You know, these sorts of rules that we've been taught I talk a lot in the book about what I call like the invisible faith rules. And I'm not saying that anyone ever said this was a rule, but there seems to be this tacit assumption among us that those things are bad. For example, being angry at God. I definitely grew up living in the deep south. Being mad at God, not acceptable. That's not something you do. That's considered very hateful and blasphemous and ungrateful and whiny and complaining. So, you know, like that's just not a thing in in a lot of communities. And definitely in mine, it, it really wasn't. But the more I started looking at the Bible, I was like, wait a minute. You know, if you look at certain figures, including Jesus himself, there is so much deep questioning. There's so much lament. There's so much grief. There's so much anger quite frankly, you know, a lot of the time. And I thought, wow, this is actually, I am, you know, it's almost a joke if I say outlaw Christian, because in some ways I want to say, I'm just actually a Christian, you know, but more returning to the roots. And so I use the word radical in the subtitle of the book, Finding Authentic Faith by uh, Breaking the Rules, and thinking of myself then as, you know, kind of a radical in some way. But the truth is radical has the root uh, the root word of radical is the same as for a radish. So it really just means getting back to our roots. It really means root. So I'm a radical only in the sense that I'm trying to get back to the roots of what I think is authentic Christianity. Oh, gosh, I love that. <clears throat> I actually had that in my notes, too. So I'm glad you said I'm glad you covered that. Um, <laughs> oh, okay, good. So I didn't mean to steal your thunder there. But, no, yeah. no, 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 no. Um, no, that's fantastic. Um, and one of the things, that's, uh, things that I think is interesting is is that um, you seem to be kind of a rarity in the sense that uh, we don't often hear theologians admit that, oh, I have doubts also. Uh, so, yes. so so, why is that? Why, why is it that? Because I, I think one of the things you bring up in the book also is just um, uh, the, the, the term authenticity. And I think that's what yes. 
so many of, of the current generation are looking for is, is we've talked about this a lot in the podcast. They're just searching for something that feels authentic and not like they're being, um, you know, marketed to. Uh, and, and I think, right. I think if so many theologians, uh, realized that and just admitted, you know what, I, I don't know either. That would be actually a, a refreshing thing to hear. So why, why is that so difficult and so rare? Do you think? Yeah. Oh, what a great question. Well, you know, I feel like in our profession and across basically all of the academy, right, um, we really get caught up in answers, being people with the answers. There's a certain amount of pride, I think, that people take in that, including theologians. And it can become very dangerous. I also think it's also just a bleed over from our general culture. So I don't just want to blame you know, theologians or professors, right? I believe that in our culture we have what I call certainty porn. <laughs> we really are obsessed with certainty. It's what we it's what we admire. You know, if you think about during presidential elections, if people ask a president to be or a presidential candidate a question, and if they were to say, "Huh, you know, I really don't know the answer to that. I'm going to have to do some research. I'm going to have to ask someone. You know, I'm not really qualified to answer that. Nobody says that. Never. They don't say, I don't know. Never. Nobody yeah. says that. I watch debates waiting for the day when someone will actually admit, you know what? I'm not an expert on that, and I'm going to defer to someone else, and I'm going to ask, and I'll get back to you. And the truth is, in the real world, I really admire that. I think if we think about the people our culture's caught up in this kind of, I call it certainty porn. But I, I think that in real life, we admire when a person says to us, you know what, I don't really know. I mean, I can remember times in my life when someone said that to me when I was younger, and I learned so much from it because there's a vulnerability, John, in not knowing, and we we don't want to be that person. We don't want to be vulnerable most of the time. <laughs> and so that just adds to our vulnerability to admit that we are not always knowledgeable about everything. But what's beautiful about being a person who's willing to admit it, and and in particular being a theologian who's willing to admit it, is by acknowledging that we do not know everything, we admit that we need one another. And to me, that's the beauty of uncertainty, is that it proves my interdependence. I need you. If I don't know the answer... I'm going to have to ask somebody else. And so yeah, yeah. I think as, right, as faith-filled people, what better thing to show the way that we, that we need one another, that we're all members of one body, you know, as the scripture says. The, the foot needs the hand, you know? Yeah. And I just feel like, ah, uh, wait, that's part of what, why intellectual humility matters to me and being able to say to my students, I don't know. The other thing is, you know, as a teacher, when we say to students, oh, I don't know the answer to that, that sets them free to say the same thing. You know, it sets them free to to go out and and research a topic and ask people and and try to figure out an answer to something and to learn more. So I think it, it sets a very powerful example. And I think theologians are reluctant to do it because, first of all, they're human, right? Second of all, they're part of this culture, just like anybody else. And third of all, in the academy, we're trained to be experts with answers. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And I just, I want to break out of all of that. I'm completely an outlaw when it comes to that. Sometimes my students will ask me a question and I will write on the board uh, an acronym. I 
J-D-K. And they'll be like, what does that mean? And I'm like, it means I just don't know. It means I just don't know. So help me figure it out. Help me figure it out, you know? And then we become more of a community who needs one another rather than one person has the answers and everybody else is just waiting for our wisdom. That's just not the way we should function. Along the lines of vulnerability, uh, I love that you said that because um, I, I think this is very much connected. And you, you have this great bit that you do. Uh, you talk about it not only in your books, but you talked about it uh, when I saw you at Capital Univers- or Trinity Seminary. I guess it's all Capital now, though, isn't it? It um, is Capital now, too. <laughs> that's true, yes. yeah. They've, they've united. Um, but you had this great... This great um, moment where you talked about uh, this thing, this exercise that you do with your with your classes, and and it's in relation to to grief and specifically uh, instances when we start to cry. I would love for you to talk about that. I thought that was so amazing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So right. So one of the rules that I'm advocating in Outlaw Christian that we should break is this uh, rule, again, a tacit one, um, but that we should apologize for tears. So nobody's ever said to me, right, growing up that I should apologize for tears. However, everyone around me apologizes for tears. They start crying, and people say, I'm sorry. And so I, too, became a person who did that for a long, long time. But when then I was dealing with my mother's terminal illness, which which went on for so long, you know, 16 years, almost 17, I had so many tears, John, and I got so tired of apologizing for them. And then I, I really just started thinking about, why are we doing that? You know, we are taught to apologize in our culture for things that are wrong or mean or embarrassing or disrespectful. And I don't believe that tears are any of that. I think tears are a God-given gift that shows other people our grief, you know, and it is, it is a manifestation where words cannot go. It's like a bookmark. It's like this pain is so great right now that I'm just going to show you rather than tell you. And I think that that's very powerful. So one of the things that I do with my students, which I think is what you're referencing, is I teach a lot of things where students are really bringing their whole selves to the classroom and there are a lot of tears that occur. I teach a class called the problem of evil, right? And a lot of tears happen, even when I'm on the road speaking in churches to people any ages about my books and the things I'm writing on, okay? There's a lot of tears happening. And now, uh, these days, at the beginning of every class semester, I ask the class to come up with some community agreements. And these are things that we're going to hold one another accountable to. So it's some agreements that we're coming to that we're going to honor, you know. And one of the things that the students have always started, because now the word is out, uh, they started coming up with, we will not apologize for tears in this space. And I think that's so beautiful. And that started one day because I asked the students, a student had started to cry, and I, I said, you know, thank you for your tears. And she had apologized. And I was like, look, can we, is it okay if we talk about that for a minute? Everyone was like, yeah. And I was like, who can tell me why we're doing that? And the students were like, I 
don't know. And the more they thought about it, the madder they got. You know, they were like, why (laughs) am I apologizing? You know, there's nothing to be ashamed of that I am a human with emotions. And I thought that was so beautiful. And they're always like, we're never apologizing for tears again. So I consistently have that conversation. And I typically now just have it in the beginning of class, you know, of the whole semester around the community agreements. And they always want to put it on the agreements. You know, no need to apologize for tears here. And I just love that. I think it's so liberating. Oh, it's it's wonderful. And I remember when you said it, uh, when I saw you at Capitol, <clears throat> I started laughing because I'm like, yeah, we do do that. And I, and I don't know why either. <laughs> like... You know, it's just funny to see everyone's reaction. And that's part of what it means, I think, to do theology is to ask the really strange questions about everyday things. Yeah. I think that that's, to me, that's what's beautiful about being a theologian is like really digging down to the deep meaning of the things that we do and the things we believe and the way that we act. And that that can really set you free in a lot of ways. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. So one of the one of the big things that you talk about, and the, the main structure of the book, and I love the way you have it broken out by chapter, and each chapter is kind of like this 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 uh, fake rule, you know, that you're yes. you're trying mm-hmm. to, to to dispel. And so, and and a lot of folks, I know, you know, myself included, I know Adam, uh, you know, we all kind of grew up with some uh, semblance of a list of do's and don'ts, as you call them in the book. And it, and it really yeah. shapes the way that we view, you know, religion and, and faith and that sort of thing. Um, so you really expand on it and you even have some, some cliches, uh, woven in there as well. That I thought were fantastic, but, um, mm-hmm. so let's talk about, let's talk about one of the first ones in you met, you referenced this at the beginning, this idea of, um, uh, never getting mad at God because that's a no, no. Mm-hmm. Which is hilarious because, as you mentioned, we have an entire section of the Bible called Lamentations. <laughs> right? So, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you say nothing of the book of Job. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, Poor guy. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, right? Yeah, so you have this, you have this great, you have this great uh, quote specifically about Job, too, where um, you, you talk about the story of Job. And I would love to discuss this quote because I thought it was so, um, so poignant and it, it really made me think where you say, uh, though God's whirlwind, whirlwind explanation to Job might fail to satisfy, the fact remains that God's re- God rewards Job's honesty with presence. Mm-hmm. Talk about that, because like, that, that's something that's very, I think, easy to overlook in that story. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. Thank you. So one of the things that was fascinating to me during my own personal grief journey with the loss of my mom was turning back to the scripture and seeing what's going on. Right. And one of the things I did was I started reading Job and I was really shocked by what I found there. I don't know how I'd missed it for all those years, but I had, and I started reading and I thought, Oh my gosh, he is just lamenting. He is just mad at God. He is just, you know, quite bitter, quite frankly, for 37 chapters of the Bible. All he's doing is, is audaciously lamenting, okay? Yeah. And I thought, and I thought, wow, you know, okay, so that's, that's what Joe is doing. But then what's really shocking is the ending of the book, because I, I felt like if we were really following all these faith laws that we're kind of taught to do, like to not be angry at God, um, and that's really all Job is, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, if, and, we're, and we're taught not to do that. What's so fascinating is that Job's friends are the opposite of him. Job's friends are like all of the friends that, you know, um, 
we even have today. Like typically, a lot of our friends, yes. I shouldn't say all, but a lot of them are just going to offer us a lot of cliches about why <laughs> good things happen. You know, bad things happen to good people. Right, They're right. going to offer us a lot of reasons for it, you know? And that's actually what Job's friends do in, in the book of Job. They are just like all of us who've ever said, oh, you know, um, this suffering is happening because God is testing your faith, or your, it's, your suffering is going to make you stronger, or everything happens for a reason. That's what all of Job's friends are saying. And Job is like not having it. He's like, I am just pissed off. I cannot believe you did this. Why did you even have me be born, God? Why did you even bring me forth from the womb? He accuses God of being a murderer. I mean, it's it's really shocking when you read it that this is considered wisdom literature. And I thought, well, there's got to be a point. And then you get to the end, and God appears in the whirlwind and chastises all of Job's friends who are just offering all of the traditional cliches for why we suffer that most of us offer and that every greeting card offers. And so it's amazing that God condemns that. And God says, you have not spoken rightly of me in the way that my servant Job has. And that sentence, I remember just staring at that for hours and thinking, so it's okay, right? It's okay that (laughs) Job is yelling at God and he's enraged. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, I get what's okay about it because most of us are passive aggressive and we tell everybody else the thing that we're mad about, but we don't say it to the person we're actually mad at, right? We go around to everybody else and be like, hey, you know what so-and-so did? And what's beautiful about Job is there's no passive aggressiveness. He goes straight to God and it's like, how dare you take away the people that I loved? And you're just like, wow, you know, (laughs) that's so powerful. There's none of that other stuff. And so I thought it's amazing that that's what God affirms. And, and I, and then as I was reading it in a more deeper way, it occurred to me that maybe it's that authenticity that makes God show up. I'm not really satisfied with the things that God says from the whirlwind necessarily, but what does fill me with the deepest comfort is that even God was challenged to be like, I better get over there. (laughs) So it shows up to all of these things that Job is saying. And then Job is not ultimately alone. And when I read that story, I think, oh, and guess what? Neither am I. When I'm upset with God, as I very much have been so many times in my life, when I see tragedies happening to other people, when I see injustice, Sure, I own a lot of that as human being. We own a lot of that as humans. But some of it, some of it, really, you know, cancer. Like, why is that a thing? Tsunamis, this is painful stuff. And there's just not an answer. And sometimes I just want to lament at God, with God, against God, whatever. And you know what I'm secretly hoping? I'm secretly hoping that God is listening and that God is going to show up. And to me, that's what's beautiful about Job is, is you know what? He believes someone is listening. Uh, yeah, and it's 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 like you, you hear a lot of um, a lot of people kind of use the the, the phrasing um, personal relationship with God, and I always think in yeah. moments like that, it's like what kind of a personal relationship is it if you can't truly be honest? You know, mm, what a great point. 
Exactly. We, yeah, we just kind of whitewash even our prayers, which is odd to me, you know, like as if God can't, doesn't know your deepest, darkest thoughts, you know? <laughs> like, Absolutely. How silly to think that God doesn't know it. See? Isn't that, right. I agree. Isn't that what's beautiful about Job? Job is like, you already know what I'm thinking anyway, so I'm going to say it out loud. Right. <laughs> exactly. And other people can hear me, and they're offended. That's usually the thing, right? Job's friends are as offended as a lot of contemporary Christians would be if we were saying, you know, things about things to God, like, God, you know, if there's that line, you know, Job 10, 16 through 18, bold as a lion, you hunt me. Why did you even bring me forth from the womb? Yeah. I think a lot of my friends, a lot of people, if they heard me say that, they'd be like, wow, that makes you sound really ungrateful for the life that you have. Just because everything's not perfect. Right. That's, that's the yeah. kind of thing. That's the place where we would go. Like we assume lament is a kind of faithlessness. Like you've lost faith. We assume that it's also a kind of ingratitude almost. Well, you should be grateful for these other things that you have. Yeah. And it's like, can't we just acknowledge the loss already? Just let me acknowledge the loss. And I feel like, isn't it amazing that we have a sacred text that's, that in which God is saying, yes, just acknowledge the loss. You've spoken rightly of me. Yes. I mean, it, life, life is difficult as as it is, you know, and, and yet we seem yeah. to want to, I mean, you call this out in the book, really suppress what it is we're truly thinking and feeling instead of yeah. uh, embracing one another and working through it, you know, as a community. We don't do that, though. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Right. And that's so painful because then everybody thinks they're alone in their grief and their doubt and their questions and their laments because there's no public space in which we're allowed to share it. And then, then people just harbor it secretly. And, yeah. and that's terrible. That's terrible. And then everyone thinks that they're alone in it. So it's not that we are alone in it. It's that we've been taught not to talk about it. And then that leads us to feel alone. That's tragic. And I want to overcome that. I work every day on overcoming that with my friends, with my family, with my students. We have, we have to lead on that. We have to be outlaws. Yes. Uh, amen. <laughs> and you have a, you have a great quote that I'm not going to bring up yet. Cause we're not to that topic yet, but you have a great quote okay. along those lines that I'm going to quote you to you, uh, in a minute, okay. <laughs> but, uh, um, but, uh, it, what's interesting is you, you have this great, you have this great line though, um, uh, ar- around the same section of the book where you talk about, um, something that I think is very, very important. It's something that, that we've tried to talk about in the podcast. And, and this is where I, I, you, you made me recall uh, Richard Rohr, uh, because he says something similar, mm-hmm. uh, where you say that the path of the outlaw Christian is not for everyone. It's only for those who need it. And it's like, yes. it, Rohr says something similar. He says, you can't take someone on a journey they aren't ready for, uh, or something along oh, those lines. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I just think that's so important um, because, yeah, it's not for everyone. And, and maybe not yet, or maybe not ever, but, but there, there is a place, I think, uh, for this, you know, for, uh, just the, the knowledge that there is another path. Cause I think, I think that's what yeah. your book really kind of sh- helps to show is it, it, mm-hmm. and that's what we've been trying to, I think, uh, accomplish, uh, to some extent on the podcast is that, uh, there, it's not just either, or it's not either, uh, extreme fundamentalism or atheism, there is another way uh, to be Christian that I would argue uh, falls more in line, uh, more in line with the teachings of Jesus and, and, you know, the good news that, that you find in the gospels. But 
Yes. Yeah. yeah. And your podcast does a great job of, I think, of showing that, that middle way, yeah. right? Yeah. There's a, there's a space, there's a space for us, for those of us who feel like, oh, I don't quite fit in. Yes, we do. We, we fit in with the other people who think they don't fit in. Yeah. <laughs> and there's so, and there's so much power in that, you know, when I go on the road and speak on that book and in my new book too, that's what I hear all the time. People come up in tears at the end and say, oh, I'm not alone. Thank you for that. Yeah. And I think, I think that's probably the biggest part of it is just mm-hmm. allowing, giving people the information that they're not, they're not on this journey alone. They're not, they're not the only people out there. Cause we hear that all the time. We hear people who email us or we'll, we'll talk to them in person and they're like, Oh, I just thought I was the only one who was thinking this or feeling this or whatever. And you're like, if you only knew, <laughs> you know, like, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah. That's why I wrote this book, quite frankly, because I thought, oh, if you only knew, you know, how many people think this, because I get to hear it all the time, you know, in my position as a teacher and a public speaker. So many people say the same things. I have never, ever talked to an audience about uh, the, the, I call them the suffering and evil cliches, you know, all of our excuses for like why suffering and evil happen. Uh, I have never once shared that with with an audience just even brought that up where I didn't get a huge eye roll. Everybody gives me the eye roll of like, oh my gosh, when, when somebody said to you, oh, God just needed another angel. Yeah. That's why your loved one died. Everyone gives the eye roll, you uh, know? And so I was like, uh-huh, see, we need to just talk about this more because these cliches are causing people a lot of pain. Well, causing pain too, and I think it's not allowing uh, the person who is in pain to, to fully embrace their grief. And really process. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're shutting that we're shutting that down prematurely because we're uncomfortable with it a lot of the time. Oh uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, it, it makes us uncomfortable, which is the which is the irony. It's not the the person who is feeling the grief isn't necessarily the one who's uncomfortable. It's the person who is who should just be saying, "I'm really sorry," and hugging them. You know, that's which is typically all you can do and all they want, right? So. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that can just be so comforting. Yeah. Just to not have someone try to fix it or offer a reason for it. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about, like, you have this great chapter on uh, doubting your faith and how that's one of the other um, unwritten no-nos. And um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, let's talk about uh, how that's actually okay. And it's actually also found within the Bible. And then also I'd love for you to expand a little bit. Like you have this moment where you talk about, um, breaking up as you call it, breaking up with God. And mm-hmm. you always find a way to get me choked up in one of your books. And it drives me nuts. <laughs> no, but there's this moment, there's this line you had in the book. And I was like, I was like, uh, there, there we go again, where you talk about mm-hmm. the fact that like, I mean, and, and I can too, I can personally identify with people who are saying like, I, it's just, I can't, I can't do it right now. I have, you know, as you say, people who are breaking up with God, because typically they have pretty, yeah. pretty good reasons, you know, and, but, but you I say, yeah. you say the most powerful thing at the end though, and, and hopefully you remember what I'm saying here. Um, the, the important thing you said as, as I see it is to not let go of anyone's hand, no matter what road they're walking down. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I stand by that still. Yes. Yeah. I'd forgotten that I wrote that line, but that's how that chapter ends. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. I mean, so this thing, this thing about doubt, I think we all grow up kind of learning. What is the opposite of faith? Doubt. 
I don't think that's true at all, right? And it goes back to what you were saying earlier, John, about the either-or thinking that we are kind of trained in in our culture where things have to be good or they're bad or they're, you know, black or they're white. And it's like, no, really. We all know that where we really live is, is in the both and. And for me, that's relevant when we talk about faith and doubt. Because to me, doubt is a sign that your faith is wonderfully alive and it's actually wrestling. It's struggling. And I just think a faith without doubt is just, I don't know, you know, like not really faith because then it's just certainty. And yeah. to me, faith and certainty aren't the same thing. That's what makes faith faith is that we are taking things on trust. You're, you're taking that, that leap into the unknown. So for me, doubt is a very powerful thing. And I, was very, introduced to doubt through uh, Elie Wiesel, who was a very famous um, Holocaust survivor and Nobel Peace Prize winner and Jewish theologian and writer. And um, he died just a few years back. But I had the pleasure of meeting him and reading his work when I was in college. And, you know, being a survivor of the Holocaust and having watched all of his family die, he was a massive doubter. Yeah. And I remember reading his book night. He's also very upset with God, you know, in, in a lot of his writing. I remember reading his book night, which is his memoir of surviving the Holocaust and watching his whole family die in front of his eyes, in some cases, in the case of his father. And just, I just, you know, the, my pages are completely tear soaked in that book. And I still have it in that original copy. And I remember reading it and thinking, Oh my gosh, He's given me the freedom to doubt because I remember learning about the Holocaust when I was in college and thinking, where is God in this? And that's exactly the question that Elie Wiesel asked over and over again because he doesn't know the answer. He's hoping maybe someday to have an answer, but he's willing to just sit with the doubt because some atrocities just you know, call that forth in us. And so I realized that sometimes doubt is a, is a form of compassion and it's a way of authentic listening to someone else in their struggle that maybe I can't connect to, or maybe I can, uh, but in either way, I'm acknowledging that's the road that they're walking down and I am called to hold their hand on that. So, and, and then the other thing I can just add about this is that I, again, I, I really like turning to scripture and seeing, well, what does scripture say about doubt? And so, of course, many of us, if we've gone to Sunday school as children, we learned about Thomas. And we even call him Doubting Thomas. Yes. <laughs> and I do a radical reinterpretation of Thomas in Outlaw Christian. And I would say that's the thing that's gotten the most traction. Um, it was even part of an online devotional kind of thing. And that's what they ex they chose to excerpt was my piece on what I think about Thomas. Because I do not think Thomas was a doubting loser. I think he was the best possible friend to Jesus. And the reason I say that is because of that he actually goes to Jesus and he is the one who asks about Jesus's scars. The other disciples, they see Jesus, you know, Jesus shows his scars to them and then they move right straight to the hope and the redemption and the resurrection, right? And it's only Thomas who actually expects scars and asks Jesus 
he doesn't believe that it's Jesus until he sees them. And we get really critical of that. We're like, oh, he just is doubting that that's, that that's Jesus and whatever. I have a very different take on that. I think that what he's actually doubting is that anyone could have survived the cross without scars. And that's very profound because, if you know, surely Jesus did have scars. And what's really beautiful about that is that Thomas is not afraid to ask Jesus about them. When Jesus shows them, Thomas doesn't make him feel weird or ugly or embarrassed. And these are very powerful things that most of us hope for in our friends. We hope that our friends will see us holistically, all of our hurt and all of the hope, too. And to me, that's Thomas. He sees the resurrection. He gets it. But he's like, just because you're resurrected doesn't mean that there wasn't real pain and something that you needed to be resurrected from. And that's very, that's very powerful because in our culture, again, coming back to the cliches, we move very quickly to, oh, and here's the happy ending. Look at this happy ending. And Thomas is like, okay, happy ending, check, but where's the scars? Because wasn't your suffering real? And so to me, ah, actually they have a very, very moving friendship. And it's, it's really one that I try to model with my friends. I'm not afraid to hear my friends talk about their scars. I, I want to be a person who doesn't make them embarrassed when they show them. And I feel like that is the basis of an authentic friendship. Do we really know one another if we don't know anything about the scars that we carry? I don't know. I would question that. I, I feel like we really don't know each other until those utmost uh, confidences have, have been shared and that, that trust is there in order to share those scars. So I feel like that's what he, he, he teaches us. Thomas teaches us that scar sharing is how we practice resurrection. And to me, that's, that's very beautiful. And that has to involve a certain level of doubt. Yeah, and, and it comes back again to vulnerability as well. Yes, it does. And then we're full circle again with the not apologizing for the tears, not apologizing for the scars. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and um, we, were, we were talking earlier uh, offline about this great quote uh, that, you, you, uh, that you brought up uh, when I saw you speak about scars and just about yes. just another way of looking, I think, at scars. Because most of us have kind of a negative you know, there's a negative connotation to a scar, right? I think that there is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah so, absolutely. So th- there's an amazing quote, and if you want, you want me to share it? Yeah, I would love to, yeah. Okay, so there's a really beautiful quote from someone else that I share in Outlaw Christian, and it's actually from the author Chris Cleave. He's written a novel called Little B, and it's just this one of those things where you just stop reading and you're like, what did he just say? It's one of the most beautiful quotes about scars that I've ever read. So I always share it, you know, and I share it in all my writing when I'm ever talking about um, scar sharing and Thomas and everything. And this is the quote. Chris Cleave writes, a scar is never ugly. That is what the scar makers want us to think. But you and I, 
We must make an agreement to defy them. We must see all scars as beauty. Because a scar does not form on the dying. A scar means I survived. Ah, gosh. That's, yep. (laughs) Great. I mean, it's amazing, right? It's completely brilliant. He just revolutionizes the way we think about scars. Only survivors have scars. So why don't we see the beauty? And why are, why are we so afraid to share them, you know? Right. That should be a badge of yeah. honor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, my, I, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Oh. Uh, gosh, that's good. Yeah, that's the one I was looking for. <laughs> I've spent the better part of uh, the last, like, month trying to find that quote. <laughs> <laughs> And I just gave it back to you. So there you go. You can listen to this. You can write it down. (laughs) Tomorrow I'll probably be scrolling back through your book and then I'll find it. So, you know. (laughs) Yeah, you'll you'll find it. You'll find it. No, it's it's a wonderful quote and it really helped me a lot. And it also, I, I supplement that with another revolutionary conversation that I had with a dear friend uh, about scars and survival and that sort of thing. So my, my dear friend is a survivor of sexual assault. And one time I was listening to him talking about his experience. And I said, this must be really hard for you to talk about. And I said that because I thought that that was showing him compassion. Yeah. And I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. He was actually loading the dishwasher when I said that. And he put the dish down and looked me straight in the eye. And he said, it's only shameful if I, it's only hard to talk, sorry, it's only hard to talk about if I accept the shame that other people want to put on me. Hmm. And I was, I was blown away by that. He changed forever my understanding of shame, right? Because why are we walking around in our culture with shame for the horrible things that other people have done to us? That is actually preposterous. And we have to stop. And it's people like my friend who are willing to open up and share that scar. And he tells people that he is a survivor of sexual assault. And that's not easy for men in this culture. It's not easy for women either. And I'm always so proud to be around him and to know a person like that because he is all about busting shame culture. And he said that can only happen if people who carry those scars are willing to talk about it and just say, I'm not accepting the shame that you're trying to put on me. No, thank you. So he's kind of my hero, you know? So, but it also, it reminds me that Thomas is a little, Thomas is like that too. And then Jesus is like that too. Jesus is like, you want to see my scars? Here you go. Jesus is not ashamed of them at all. Jesus is like, I'm going to show you these because they're an essential part of who I am. Yeah. And and one of the things you talk about, and and this kind of leads into it is, is what you call uh, the, Unwritten law number five, I think it is, I think it was number yeah. five. Never tell your story. Vulnerability is weakness. Yeah. Never tell your real story. Your real yeah. story. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Exactly. No, same. Yeah. That's it. Yep. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, yeah. Um, yeah. Go, yeah. Go ahead. Like what are, what are your thoughts on that? How do we, how do we 
because as as a culture, you're right. I think it I think it definitely impacts uh, the men in society probably a little bit more in in terms of um, be, being more open to being vulnerable and, and sharing those things. And I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. Just because of just you know decades and decades and generations of just this nonsense where you know it's it, it's all equates to weakness. You know. So how do we as twenty first mm-hmm. century Christians who are um, trying to, to break those, those myths and, and get rid of that nonsense and, and kind of move forward and, and be a healthier society. How do we, how do we move past that? Yeah, we got to disrupt toxic masculinity, right? That's yeah. one place uh, to begin. And I think one of the ways that we do it is by admiring vulnerability, creating spaces for it that are socially acceptable. And again, that comes back full circle to lament, to scar sharing. Where are the public spaces for lament? Somebody show me where those are. Uh, you know, yeah. so we need more of them and we have to start creating them for one another. Even if, you know, culture is not creating them, we have to push back on that, be countercultural and create them ourselves. And I, I just feel like there are so many people that once I get to know them, they share some type of secret story with me. You know, there are so many things that, that people carry and sometimes I envision it as most people have inside of them kind of a miniature secret tiger, and it's inside of their chest, and it's just clawing to get out. And I, I think about that the secret tigers have names. You know, sometimes they're addiction, abuse, rape, assault, discrimination, miscarriage, divorce. There's so many names, right, to, the, to our secret tigers. But I've seen so much healing happen when we uh, allow those stories to be exposed to the light. And sometimes just because then we realize we're not the only person with a story like that. And when we are teaching one another, just, you know, at least through our actions and our behaviors, you know, for example, apologizing for tears, when we're teaching that vulnerability is bad, I think we're forgetting, particularly for people of faith to think that way is extremely misguided because if you look at the root of the word vulnerable, at its root lies lies the word wound. So vulnerability comes from woundedness. And when we think about as Christians, who is the God whom we love? Well, that God is our God, is a publicly wounded God. So we have a God who's choosing to be vulnerable. And therefore, it makes no sense for us to hide our vulnerability from one another. We have to, to truly be a follower of Jesus and a follower of God. We have to be people who also are willing to share our wounds publicly. And I've seen a lot of powerful ways that communities are doing this, particularly when I've been, you know, on the road speaking about a Christian. And one of the things that I encountered that was uh, was very powerful was the idea of the Blue Christmas service. Yes. And that was not something that a lot of years ago that I had heard about, but a, the Blue Christmas service is a Christmas service I mean, it's offered around Christmas time, you know, usually on the longest day of winter, so kind of December 21st kind of thing. And it's for those folks, and there's many of us out there, for whom Christmas is not just Mary 
Right. And maybe it's not Mary at all. Maybe we've just lost a loved one. Maybe we lost a child. And we want to be allowed to lament because this is our Christmas without first Christmas or second Christmas or third Christmas without that person. And we know it's never going to be the same. Where's the space to bring that into our Merry Christmas culture? We just say Merry Christmas as if that's the only emotion you can feel on Christmas. Oh, yes. And that is not the only emotion people are feeling on Christmas. We have to be better, right? And so the Blue Christmas is creating this service, and it's, it's a lament service where we lament the people that we have lost and how much we miss them around the Christmas season, especially, and around those holiday seasons. And oh, I have attended Blue Christmas services. I've been asked to speak at them many times now based on the book. And it's just every time I walk away just a little bit more healed because I was allowed to share in public that Christmas is not just merry for me. You know, those of us who've lost someone, it's like, it's not true that time heals all wounds. What is true, maybe, is that time helps us to be able to live with those wounds a little bit better. But it's not true that they're healed. That's crazy. Anyone who's ever lost someone will be like, yeah, that doesn't go away. There's not a Christmas that's going to happen where I don't miss my mother. Right. Never going to happen. You know, she died and it was a horrible, cruel illness that took her from us way too young. You know, she was only 50 years old Mm. and I was only 20 and there's never going to be a Christmas where I'm just going to be married. I'm going to be married, and I'm also going to feel sad. And, and we just have to allow one another to live in the both-end space. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and acknowledge the fact that that's, that's okay, you know? Absolutely. Like, yeah. Uh, so I think the, one of the things I love the most about this book is that for your last chapter, uh, you choose uh, the perfect way to wrap up the book, and that is on the subject <laughs> of hope. And so, yes, you got to end with hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's not such, such an easy thing to, to get to, I think for, especially for a lot of us, especially I, I you know, I'm sure everyone said this about their generation and, and their moment in time, but right now it just feels especially, uh, glib, you know, um, whether you're paying yeah. attention to the political climate or, um, the, the shootings and the violence that are, you know, that's happening across, uh, the world. And, and for me, I know every time it seems like every week there's another shooting and I find it very difficult, uh, sometimes to feel hopeful. And I'm, I'm sure for someone else listening, yeah. it's, it's something else. So absolutely, how do we find hope amongst the, <laughs> amongst the, the despair and the, and the awfulness we see? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think part of it is we have to, we have to tell our own good news. We have to make our own good news and we have to share it. You know, I love how, you know, in the Bible, Jesus was like, yeah, I came to bring the good news. Well, when most of us watch the news, we just are filled with despair, right? Like we are watching the news, we're reading the news online, wherever we're getting our news, we're just like, oh my gosh. And I see this every day. I see it in myself. You know, I see it in young people that I'm working with all the time. I see it in the pews of the churches I'm visiting. And it's overwhelming, right? There's so much bad news. Where is the good news? So I love that Jesus is like, I came to bring it. (laughs) But then if you're going to follow Jesus, you need to bring it too. So that's why in the book I share so many of good news stories that I've heard that people have, you know, um, honored me by, by allowing me to be a sacred steward of their, of their good news story. And there's also just some that I share from history that 
whenever I teach them, people haven't heard them. And I'm like, that's tragic. But ask yourself why. I mean, there's all these amazing stories of hope and we don't, we don't know them. And I think that's because people know that despairing people in power probably suspect that people in despair are a lot easier to control than hopeful people. Hopeful people cannot be stopped. They're going to change things. And so we have to be people who share our personal good news, our local good news, our community good news, all of it. Like we have to be people, our global good news, we have to share it. I start every day of my class by having a student bring in a hope meditation of something that, ha- that gives them hope. Because otherwise our course content becomes it becomes too much. Now we also have a justice watch. You know, I have the students also have to bring in something that they want to raise our awareness about, um, raise our consciousness about a justice issue. But then they also have to do a hope meditation so that we, we live in that both. And we are a world where so many beautiful, powerful micro hope acts are happening. And, but there's yeah. also a lot of ugly hate discrimination, injustice, and inequality happening as well. And so we have, I believe as a person of faith, we have to be willing to look it all in the face. We have to be eyes wide open with, with all of it and be people who don't run away in fear and try to escape it. Um, but making a contribution to the world's good news is something I try to wake up every day and try to do. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <clears throat> so before we, before we go today, what um, – Yeah. What what are what are you working on now, and, and what else? Uh, you know, given given the opportunity, what else would you like to say to to the listeners out there? Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, let's see. What what am I working on now? I am working on being faithful to my latest book. You know, which is Love Without Limits. It's a celebration of love, and that little book keeps me on the road all the time. So I have traveled just about every weekend of this entire semester to speak somewhere on the book. And so I'm not working on any new writing right now because she needs me. (laughs) I joke that that's my newborn. You know, my newborn is kind of keeping me up at night and traveling and, you know, keeping me busy. And she is. And that, you know, so that's Love Without Limits. And so, you know, I'm headed to a, a church in Fresno next weekend that just became Reconciling in Christ and that book was their congregational book read and I've been all over the country this fall with that. So honestly what I'm working on now is just faithfulness to the book's message which is that um, we are all loved without limits by God and um, we should love in that same way. We should love each other that same way. So I guess that's probably the, the main thing that I'd like to close on is just saying that, just remembering that you're loved and remembering that if you are carrying around a, a story of grief, you're not alone in that. And if you are carrying around a story of hope, you're not alone in that either. And so go out and share it because the world needs to hear it. Ah, uh, I love it. I, I just I can't I can't speak highly enough uh, about both books, uh, Outlaw Christian and Love Without Limits, which was my first exposure to your work. Um, I just think they're both beautiful books, uh, just beautifully written. And uh, I've told you this a bunch of times before. I'll t- I'll say it again. Um, it, it, it's one thing to be uh, 
a brilliant academic, but um, that's not, not always synonymous with uh, beautiful writing, and, and you have both going. So, um, oh, I, <laughs> thank you. I just think they're wonderful, and they're and they're and like I said before, they're just easily easy to read, and they're they're you you cover such a a breadth of um, you know heavy theological topics, but you 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 do it you write it in such a beautiful way that uh, people who aren't you know, um, theologically trained can sit down and they can understand it and they can appreciate it and, uh, and grow from it. So I just thank you for, for the work that you do. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for the wonderful work that you do with your podcast. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We need you. We need uh, your voice out there. So we need your podcast. Well, we, we, we got back up and going at the end of the year, so we're, we're still alive, <laughs> but, good, uh, but good. Keep it. it going. Thank you. Thank you. But yes, thank yeah. you again. And, um, and where, before I let you go, what's the best place to, uh, keep on top of what you're up to, uh, where you're, where you're going to be speaking, um, you know, grab a book and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. www.jacquelinebussy.com. You can find out where my next speaking engagement is and if it's a place near you. I would love to have you come out to it. And, yeah, and basically everything is on my website, and the books are available anywhere you can buy a book, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, all that. So, yeah. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming out again. I was looking forward to this. And, uh, and uh, again, just a, wonderful, just a wonderful time chatting with you. I really appreciate it. Oh, I had a wonderful time, too. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.